commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison, but all America is on the air. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of uh, BOA. Uh, We're off to a bit of an inauspicious start. I still have to load that uh, Lauren Coleman show up to the podcast feed, folks, but I I loved the conversation last week, and I'm really looking forward to tonight's program. I think it's going to be awesome. Uh, Let me take you back a little bit. I actually dug this up today. Uh, October 26, 2005, so almost 15 years ago uh, from tonight, I get an email just says, The Beast of Adam Gorightly. And it's from some character named Adam Gorightly, and he had just come out with a book titled The Beast of Adam Gorightly, and he uh, was pitching an appearance on Banal of America, the nascent Banal of America. This is back... I think I had done like six shows. Um, So we connected. He came on the program. Uh, We talked about the book, obviously. And uh, then uh, he kept coming back over the years. Became a good friend of the show. Became a a good friend to me, period. Um, He's been to my house. We've been to a Celtics game. Um, We've hung out in L.A. Uh, We even started a movie together. Uh, he was the real star of the movie. I, I, I was like, I had a cameo as a as a short order uh, fried dough cook. Uh, he was the star of the film, The Hill and the Hole. Um, so, yeah, 15 years ago, he first reached out, and, and we've had a great friendship since then. And uh, he's been keeping me abreast of this new book as he's been working on it. We talk all the time online. It's kind of crazy. Um, but we talk, like, every day online. So... Uh, He's been keeping me abreast of of what's going on with this book. So when it finally reached the shelves, the proverbial shelves, if you will, um, you know, that was – if folks want to give Adam some extra credit, um, that's kind of, in a way, what inspired me to get off my ass and get back to doing some podcasting this spring because I knew that the book was coming out and I wanted to interview Adam about it. Um, And I said, well, you know – I have I have Adam already for sure. That's I, I you know I've got the list. The list begins with Adam. Let's let's start talking to other people. Let's find out who else we can talk to. Let's let's do it. Let's get back up and running. So Adam really lit the spark to get Banal of America back uh, going uh, this spring, which is why we've got him here tonight. So with all that said, my dear friend, my good friend, welcome back to Banal of America. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me on, bud. 
You still have an email from 15 years ago? <laughs> I keep them all. I keep them all, yeah. I keep all my emails, yeah. I've got them all. I, I shouldn't say too much about them. Like, I don't know why I shouldn't, but, yeah. No, I got them all. Like, each season has a little folder in my in my, uh, in my email thing. So, like, if I need to find someone I interviewed in season three, I know I can look in the season three folder and I probably have their email. I used to be a lot more diligent about it. Now it's with social media and shit. You're talking to people on Facebook and Twitter. It's not as easy. But back then it was email, email, email. Yeah, yeah. So, the new book, Saucers, Spooks, and Kooks, UFO Disinformation in the Age of Aquarius. Uh, let's start out, I guess, just just with the basic sort of like what what inspired this new book, um, you know, and I, from what I gather, I don't remember when you first mentioned it, but you, I know you've been working on it for a while because you would talk to uh, some of us and, and you know, uh, sometimes you'd be looking for information about a thing or, you you know, you want an interview with somebody that was out there or something like that. Um, so I know you had been working on it for a while, but what, sort of what inspired this? And tell me a little bit about the journey, like putting this all together, if you will. Uh, first off, let me handle a little logistics here. I switched to my uh, smartphone here because the landline wasn't working, so I got you on speaker. And I That's fine with me what's... if it's okay with you. Yeah. Now, how do I sound? Is that fine? You seem okay to me. Okay. Very good. So, saucers, spooks, and kooks, UFO disinformation in the age of Aquarius. You were asking about uh, how this all developed over time, and it's been, sheesh, man. Uh, the thing that lit the fuse that got this going was really started in, like, uh, 2007, with a meeting with a fellow by the name of Tal Levesque. That's kind of where it starts. So that's been uh, quite a few years now. And uh, I got to know uh, Tal and a lot of the uh, interesting things he'd been involved in over the years, one of which was the Dulce Base story mm-hmm. slash mythos. And um, so th- at at that time, I started looking deeper into the whole Dolce story and really was just working on a long article that was uh, initially called My Breakfast with Tal. Then uh, I started looking at all these elements of the Dolce Base story, and uh, the article expanded into something I was calling Deconstructing Dolce. And uh, I envisioned like, like a 10,000-word article and was just kind of uh, working on that in between other stuff. I set it aside now and then for a couple of years when there was other book projects, but something kept bringing me back to it. To it. And at one point I realized that uh, I had enough material and I need to look in at other things besides Dulce when looking at this big story of UFO disinformation all these characters involved over the years, and so it eventually evolved in uh, to this book, Saucers, Spooks, and Kooks. Yeah, yeah, Saucers, Spooks, and Kooks, UFO disinformation in the age of Aquarius. want to give a, a hat tip to uh, our friend Miguel Romero, Red Pill Junkie, for doing the, uh, the book cover there. Greg Bishop and I were talking about it. I don't know if Greg mentioned this to you, but... You should talk to the other Greg, Greg Taylor. I don't even know if this is possible, but you know what would be really cool is if you, if you if you issued like limited release edition of the book in that sort of 
because um, the font on the front is like your classic, your classic Sarah sort of a UFO book '80s font, '70s '80s UFO book font. If you could issue it like in that mm-hmm. sh- in the shape, you know, I don't know what there's a name for it, but you know, like the airport style uh, paperback uh, shape, that would be oh, awesome. Right. You guys should. Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying. I, the Penguin or whatever it's called. Yeah, you guys should you guys should see about doing a limited release <laughs> version of the book in Penguin style. Yeah, because that would be like that would be awesome. Old, like the old paperbacks from back in the day, which yeah, that yeah, that you get at the airport. Yeah, and they're smaller size. Uh, you really don't see those that much anymore. Everything's pretty much uh, nine by six now or larger and uh yeah that's that's uh interesting those uh old paperbacks uh went by the uh, wayside at one point a lot of that uh, marketing for those back in the day those paperbacks you'd see them in drugstores and supermarkets and they had these specially yeah, yeah. made wraps and so that that was part of it they'd uh Stick those paperbacks in the racks, and if they didn't sell for, after a couple of weeks, and they'd bring in you know new stock of different paperbacks to try out. And so you saw a lot of the old uh, genre genre stuff, science fiction, and you know whatever was uh, popular uh, back in the day. But yeah, that, that's a cool idea. I don't, <laughs> I don't think it'll happen, but I'll uh, <laughs> see what Greg says. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I have to look at my library, but uh, yeah, I think um, the day after Roswell, definitely that one is is of that ilk. That's uh, that's how yeah. uh, that was the shape and, and the size of it. Um, so now I read the book. Obviously, I actually finished the book this afternoon, um, and I absolutely loved it. And I'm sure certain segment of of the audience I'm speaking of would just turn up their nose. But to me, it's like the book should be required reading. For anybody on UFO Twitter who considers themselves sort of like a part of the UFO field nowadays, like if they're not familiar with this, I mean, I was vaguely familiar with a lot of the stories. This fleshed out the details. This book, like the best way I can liken it to is like you untangle this in, enormous ball of Christmas lights um, and and uh, and sort of uh, sort of put try and like get it together and make it make it all make sense how all this sort of stuff happened. Um, I'm not really going to get too deeply. I don't want to spoil stuff. So, like, the book, for folks who are wondering, is, is sort of a breakdown of, like, the how the Dulce base, Dulce base story kind of came about and evolved and changed over the years and the players and the people who were, who were promoting it and what kind, of, what kind of motivations might have been behind it. And then that kind of snowballs into MJ-12 and Roswell and Area 51 and all the big tent poles of modern-day ufology uh, and how these these classic iconic uh, tales or moments or cases um, have some really dubious roots, and the more you look at it, the more it's like, oh, geez, I don't know if necessarily of any of this stuff uh, is <laughs> is what they've been saying for all these years, yeah. um, and, and 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 that's why I guess you know, like I say, people who who are in the field today who aren't familiar with that era uh, who who think. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are people who think that some of this stuff is is legit. They really, you know, it's, it's a it's a educational book, I'd say, because uh, you know, it's been a lot happening in UFO world this week. And as I'm watching it, I'm reading your book, and it's like, 
okay, what's really going on here? What's <laughs> you know, this is this is I'm seeing I'm seeing a show unfolding. What's the point of this show? So yeah. Um, that, that's like the, that's, that's sort of my endorsement of the book. And, and anyone, uh, anyone who listened to the show for a long time knows I've always been a fan of the people in the field and, and, um, rather than the so-called lights in the sky. So that this is exactly the kind of book for me. I absolutely loved it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's tremendous. It really is. So con- congratulations to you, man. I don't know how. You must have it must have driven you a little crazy because it's like a dizzying array of people that make up this <laughs> bullia base of of spooks and kooks. Well, it is, and one thing leads to another, and you have this kind of reoccurring uh, cast of characters that, that trace back many many years now, you know, to the late seventies, and you still have some of these uh, names popping up in you know current day ufology. Uh, people that were associated with the aviary uh, back in the day. And, yeah, it was, uh, man, it was, like I said, this project uh, took over, you know, 10 years. And five years ago, I thought I was about done. Then other things would emerge, you know, and it's like, oh, how do I wrap this stuff up? You know, it's the the deeper you go into something uh, sometimes – you just keep finding more and more and more that uh, with a story like this, it becomes more and more confusing and convoluted too, you know? So that, yeah, that yeah. was the try to kind of lay out this uh, for the readers. And I always uh, kind of, you know, let the reader uh, to a certain extent draw their own conclusions about what I'm putting out there in this uh, book. You decide if you want to believe or disbelieve in this, you know, I'm just uh, laying out the story, what I found, what uh, it all might mean. I don't think I came up with any uh, final definitive answer about some of the stuff and some of the players involved in this, what their motivations are, but uh, what their agendas might be, hidden or otherwise. But uh, anyway, so, yeah, that was kind yeah. of the uh, journey that uh, – I went on uh, with this book. Yeah, yeah, I think you mentioned it once in the book. It's like you need a scorecard to keep to <laughs> keep track of all these people. It's like they pop up, they all of a sudden they pop up back again. And like, uh, I, I, what I love about your book too is it's a very sort of uh, lighthearted, sort of conversational style in a way, where it's just like someone will show up again, and you'll be like, "It's our old friend." Mike Younger or whatever, and it's like, oh yeah, I remember that guy from like three chapters ago. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's like, uh, it's very, it's a fun, fun sort of informal, uh, very detailed, obviously incredibly well researched, but it's like it, it, it's 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 not like stuffy at all. I really like that about the book. Now, I guess, like I said, I'm trying not to sort of back in the day when I used to when I first started out doing this show. Uh, one of the things I used to do is like I read a book and I'd be like on page thirty two. You mentioned, and it's like, ah, shit, people don't, you know, most people aren't going to read the book. What the fuck I'm talking about? So uh, <laughs> I'm trying not to do spoilers, so I guess, or or two arcane questions. But the one of the things uh, that stood out to me, because this was like way before my time, I want to talk a little bit about Paul Benowitz. I got a couple, a few different questions about Paul Benowitz. So mm-hmm. first thing that I want to know is 
because I I came into this late. So by the time I came into this, Paul Benowitz was already uh, his tale had already concluded, and I had read uh, Project Beta, so it was kind of like okay. Um, and it's been, believe it or not, it's been 15 years since I read Project Beta because I read it before I interviewed you originally. So, and I always give Greg shit about it because I'm like, I gotta read this book. It's been like again, I've, I've, you know, it's been 15 years since I read it. Um, but who has the time, right? So, I was taken aback, I guess, reading your book at because the perception of Benowitz now is like, oh, he was crazy, he was crazy. But at reading the book, it's it, it's readily apparent that for you know, I, I would probably say, and this is kind of where I want you to, you know, illuminate me more about this, but elaborate. It 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 seems that he was pretty much like a a legit, if maybe if maybe seen as eccentric guy in the field. But like you're mentioning in the book, like John Lear comes to see him, and at one point Jacques Vallée wanted to go and see um, Paul Benowitz. So it's like, it, it apparently, and he, and he was writing, he wrote like some elaborate letter to, I think, the guy who ran APRO, where he was like, here's my investigative techniques that I'm working on. And so it seemed, uh, it seemed like he was, you know, a card-carrying, um, you know, credible, for how define that how you'd like, member of UFO world um, until things started to go south. And to me, it's like I, I never – it kind of – that light bulb never really went off in my head that it was like, oh, he was – people were citing his shit as if it was legit, you know, that he was some cutting-edge researcher. It seemed – that's how it seemed to me. So I guess elaborate on that. What was – what was his place in the in the in the cosmos of UFO world before he you know was institutionalized and, and discredited? Well, he was a player back in the day, and like a lot of uh, these guys in ufology back then, he was involved working for the government on civilian contracts. He was a physicist, an actual doctor, Doctor Paul Benowitz. Anytime you get somebody like that in who's uh, in ufology, people kind of like, wow, a real uh, academic uh, type, a scientist uh, is involved, interested in the uh, film. So he was a player uh, in the late uh, 70s. He was a, like you said, a card-carrying member of APRO, uh, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, something like that. Sounds (laughs) about right, uh, yeah. The version of MUFON, he was also interested in the uh, cattle mutilation phenomena. And it was, you know, through a kind of scientific method, have you, that he stumbled upon strange going-ons at uh, Kirtland uh, Air Force Base there in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. He lived right on adjacent to uh, Kirtland so he could look out and over it from the deck of his house, and he started seeing uh, weird shit there, you know. That's what kind of started the uh, Paul Benowitz uh, saga, uh, uh, seeing he was filming and photographing UFOs over an uh, area there at uh, Kirtland called the Monsanto Weapons uh, Area that at the time was the largest cache for uh, nuclear uh, components nuclear bomb components in the uh, U.S. And so Benowitz, uh, he, uh, you know, seeing them over that area, he became became concerned 
and he alerted the uh, Air Force security, and that uh, kind of uh, began the whole uh, what they call the Benowitz affair and the disinformation, ultimate disinformation campaign uh, that was designed by uh, spooks in the government to uh, discredit him. He was also picking up signals from Kirtland that he assumed or thought or figured out or made himself believe were coming from these uh, UFOs, and that was part of his mission, too, was to figure out what what these coded transmissions uh, were. And so that, you know, that began uh, Paul Benowitz's saga, so to speak, and the beginning yeah. of the Benowitz that got him sucked into this uh, caper. And from there, it uh, his involvement uh, escalated over time. Right, right. So it sounds like it just sort of gradually happens that people kind of started to maybe give him the side eye, and then they were like, all right, I think maybe Paul's not right in the head because he's getting crazier <laughs> as time goes well, on. Because it, 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 that certainly is what happened to him. He did get crazier as time went on. So I, I would assume that that was kind of the take for many people in ufology. They were like, something not right with Paul anymore. He's really gone off the deep end. Well, and uh, like I said, he was taken uh, seriously by folks, obviously, early on yeah. because of his uh, background. But even uh, by May of ni- 1980, he had started those uh, trans-hypnotic uh, uh, regressions with an abductee by the name of Myrna Hansen. And even at that time, he suspected that the Aliens were trying to interfere and thwart his investigations. And I recount uh, the episode in the book and uh, read about in Project Beta, too. Greg wrote about it, how, uh, you know, Benowitz had connections. He brought in Leo uh, Sprinkle, who was a uh, University of Wyoming uh, professor, and he was doing these, uh, you know, back in the mid 70s uh, hypnotic regression. So he, with his connections through APRO, Benowitz brought him in on the case. And the first session they did was in uh, Benowitz's garage in his Lincoln Town car, and he uh, covered the whole thing with foil to block out the rays of what he thought the aliens were might try to beam uh, Myrna Hansen and. Uh, Screw up, screw up the uh, session. Yeah. So even by 1980, he uh, believed or suspected that uh, there were ETs here and that they were uh, malevolent. And this evolved over time in the next couple of years with more regression sessions with Myrna Hansen. She started uh, remembering and sharing more, and one of those was being taken to a secret underground base somewhere where she was underwent, uh, you know, your typical medical uh, procedures and whatnot, and uh, at one point escaped and was running through the base when she came across all these vats with these alien hybrid babies, you know, this nightmare scenario that you later saw uh, crop up in pop culture in the X-Files in the mid-90s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, go, go ahead. So there was a lot of factors involved, and one of them had to do with, uh, obviously, uh, Richard Doty being involved in uh, passing on uh, 
sketchy documents and promoting you know these ideas of yes there there is some type of alien presence here there's a perhaps a secret treaty between the US government and the aliens trading technology for uh, humans to experiment upon and at one point as the story goes Benelux was given a, a computer by J Allen Hynek of all people who was uh, still involved with uh, doing contract work for the Air Force at that uh, time and uh, this this came from uh, Bill Moore uh, Hynek told him that yeah he delivered this computer to Benowitz uh, courtesy of the uh, US Air Force that had a software program embedded into it that would allow Benowitz to communicate with the aliens through uh, uh, like there was visual you know very uh, like early computer visuals and also uh, direct communications somehow with the aliens. And so, yeah. you know, this was also a story verified by uh, Gabe Valdez and his son, Greg Valdez, and others actually went to Benowitz's house and saw him interacting with his computer and talking to the aliens. So this was, this was uh, still pretty early on the, uh, early 80s so he was he was all in on the alien uh, menace angle of course that wouldn't have necessarily been seen as crazy by uh, you know some segments of ufology who uh, thought that uh, you know Benowitz was right on the right track and that there was a uh, ET uh, malevolent ETs visiting the earth yeah well he Sort of one of the overarching themes of the book, in a way, is that, like, a lot of the stuff that, uh, a lot of the stuff that, that he was talking about, while it doesn't seem like it was tr true at all, ended up just sort of becoming a part of the fabric of UFO lore. Um, you yeah. know, like the Dolce base and, and a lot of that stuff, and, and you know, malevolent aliens and, and things of that nature, uh, you know, human underground experimentations and shit. It was like, you, you still hear that still people still think that about this stuff, and it's mm -hmm. like uh, folks need to read this book because it gives you the real sort of scoop on on the origins of a lot of these a lot of these tales. One thing that I thought was interesting about the Benowitz thing, um, because it was like one of the few things that didn't it didn't get discredited in the in the book, and it seemed like it kind of was left hanging, where it was like well, this could actually be something real was this thing about, like, orbs, like some kind of almost, like, surveillance orbs or something like that. I thought that was really interesting because, like I said, it's like a lot – 90% of the stuff that, that's being promulgated by the characters in the book turns out to be to be hokum. But this was one thing in the book that was like, yeah, there seemed to have been some kind of weird orbs that were hanging around in his house, and even, even you know, uh, nobody can seem to explain them. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, that's – uh, perhaps uh, some of the stuff that uh, got uh, Benowitz so paranoid and drove him over the deep end were uh, some of the phenomenon going on at his uh, house that other people saw these orbs would uh, show up from time to time and it was like uh, you know what's going on here there's one story where um, Doty was working with uh, NSA National Security Agent uh, agency uh, 
folks who had also become concerned about uh, Benowitz, uh, what exactly, uh, you know, information, evidence had Benowitz gathered and what was he going to do with it because there's these secret programs going on there at uh, Kirtland. That was what uh, Benowitz had stumbled upon. Stumbled upon one of them was this uh, laser communication program. Of course, Benowitz started thinking it was uh, aliens, and maybe that was the design of the disinformation campaign was to uh, Doty and others to make him believe that. But so there was this one episode where Doty and a couple NSA dudes uh, broke into Benowitz's house for one reason or another, and. Uh, uh, saw these orbs there, you know, and Doty's going, what the fuck's that? Uh, is that yeah, yeah. some of your guys' guys' stuff? And they, they looked at him, no, we were thinking <laughs> these orbs are yours, you know. And so, you know, what was what was the design of that to, uh, you know, drive ben, Benowitz crazy? Were they there to monitor him? And I, in the book I talk about some recent stories about different uh, types orbs that have been used in uh, by the military and uh, whatnot that might have been similar to the same orbs that uh, Benowitz was seeing and that, you know, many people who came to his house also saw. Benowitz also described uh, like a uh, beam that uh, every now and then would he'd sense beaming him. And Bill Moore said the same thing. It was like a scan they could feel over their yeah. bodies. so And, you know, there was the story of the NSA were uh, hiding out in a uh, house <laughs> across the street, street from Benowitz. So who, who knows what exactly was going on. A lot of these things, you know, this is the early 80s, but we hear about now microwave uh, energy beams and all of this uh, type yeah. of stuff yeah. that might have been used on uh, Benowitz. Yeah, yeah, the orbs. Yeah, it was particularly interesting. Uh, my my last question about him, just to be just to clear up something um, that that confused me a little bit in the book. I think I have it right, but 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 the timeline of events was that he was committed, and then Bill Moore blew the whistle on on his role in in you know working with Doty and working with the government, blah blah blah. Like so, by the time Bill Moore blew the whistle, Benowitz was already out of the scene, right? Well, he kind of came in and out of the scene, but uh, you get the, the timeline here. Yeah, ben, Benowitz really went uh, off the deep end, and let's uh, pinpointing the exact year, but uh, can't do that exactly. But it was in right, right. say the mid the mid eighties where uh, he got really paranoid and uh, claimed that. Uh, aliens or men in black or whatever were uh, coming, walking through the uh, door of his house and shooting him up with drugs, all this crazy stuff. And he became a, like a chain smoker, just <laughs> one cigarette after another. Really yeah. messed up. And family became uh, concerned. And uh, for a period of time, yeah, they uh, put him into a mental uh, health facility to get his head together. And that, that wasn't for, you know, that was for uh, weeks or a uh, couple months maybe, but then he, he was back out. And he was less involved at that time, but he was still somebody 
that people were contacting and people were interested in his uh, story. A lot of people were investigating it. Linda Moulton Howe, for one. Yeah. And like you said, John Lear and these other people became interested in the Dulce Base angle. So he he was still active, not you know, still corresponding with people, but not quite as gung ho. And uh, the thing that kind of uh, ended his involvement in uh, ufology, according to uh, a couple different sources, had to do with a meeting with John Lear. John Lear came out and visited him in uh, 1988. And according to the researcher Christian Lambright, who knew all these guys quite well, something happened at that uh, meeting at, with uh, Lear, who spent a couple days at Benowitz's uh, place. Afterwards, Benowitz changed his uh, phone number and pretty much removed himself from ufology. Something happened with his interactions with uh, Lear that uh, pissed him off or unnerved him, uh, and uh, that was kind of his exit from ufology. That's the last time he was uh, really involved. And, uh, well, there's different theories about what went on with him and uh, John Lear, but that, you know, that was basically the end of uh, Benowitz's involvement in uh, Ufology, and that's right, so the time, that was at the time subsequent to that in '89 is when Bill Moore gave his famous speech at the MUFON conference, saying that different characters in the field had, had taken uh, the Benowitz affair and really now blown it out of perfor- uh, proportions and embellished on it even more and created the you know the new. Uh, a lot of the crazy stories that were then uh, running rampant in ufology, likes of John Lear and Bill Cooper, were uh, promoting about this, once again, uh, alien base where these uh, experiments were going on, and th- that the ETs, uh, reptilian overlords in some cases, were had this uh, human hybrid uh, program and that, that they were also... To be able to survive, we're ingesting the uh, precious bodily fluids of uh, babies, human babies. So <laughs> the stories became wilder and wilder. That's what Moore in his uh, famous MUFON speech was basically him stepping away from the field and telling people to be uh, cautious of these wild stories now circulating that had really started started way back when with uh, Paul Benowitz in the early 80s. Yeah. All right. So that kind of, yeah, that kind of clears up the island. Yeah, that was one of the big, um, one of those sort of nagging mysteries of the book that uh, we'll probably never really know is like what went down between Benowitz and Lear that, that you know, those couple of days that caused him to make such yeah. a crazy uh, 180. It's like, we'll, we'll probably never really know. It's one of those things. It's like, I'd I, I, I love to know, <laughs> what went down between those two dudes? Um, well, what I well, thought was interesting. Go ahead, go ahead. I, I can give you a little background on that. So, boy, that, get, that gets involved. Um, maybe we'll uh, circle back around to that. Go ahead with your question. 
All right, yeah, yeah, we'll circle, we'll circle back around to that. I thought what was interesting, it's sort of two sort of aspects of the book in my mind kind of encapsulated um, what you're trying to explain to people was happening here with all this stuff. Um, and you mentioned, I don't have it in front of me. I, like I said, I tried not to do this, so this is probably one of the few instances where I'm going to get into it like this. But you mentioned Doty and some other guy. I don't have it in front of me, but they – essentially would seed information to different researchers. Um, and in turn, these researchers, they didn't know that they were all getting the information. There was like two guys. I should just really grab the fucking book and, <laughs> and find the page so I know what I'm talking about here. Where is it? Page 87. See, this is a real old school banal of America. Usually I don't even read the guest books anymore. That's how lazy I've gotten. But, well, uh, well, well here it is. All right. So, Okay. It says, Bruce McAbee was unaware that similar info was being fed via Doty to more Shandera Howe et al. To this end, it could be conjectured that Doty and Keller Strauss, that's the name I didn't have, coordinated to seed the same narrative to different researchers, essentially creating a feedback loop as these researchers interacted and shared information with one another. That's kind of like the overarching theme of this book, that information is being seeded to, to UFO researchers, they don't tell each other who they got it from, right? Because it's the UFO world. Nobody yeah. fucking talks. So it's like, well, my source told me the same thing about the Dolce. So it must be fucking true. It must be true if your source told you and my source told you. And it turns out the sources are like the same dude. Um, that, that to me, that was sort of the like illuminating light bulb part of 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 you know of the book well, reading it and I think it kind of partially with all due respect to Bob Emmenanger, uh I'm sure he may have a different opinion of this but he was talking about his meeting with uh, some government types when he promised this video this film of a UFO landing and and what he said was quote what I saw and heard was enough to convince me that the phenomenon of UFOs was real. And to me, that was kind of like, that's the end point of that feedback loop, folks. It's like, these people are promised shit, they're told shit, and it's like, they're told shit that is so, they want to believe, I think, I think that was the case, they want to believe this so bad, they're told fantastic shit, and, and it comes from what seems to be some legitimate source in their minds, and... Just the story, just being told this or just being shown some shady documents, that's enough. That convinces them. And, that's, and then you're off to the races. Then you're off to the races. They're convinced uh, of whatever they've just been told or shown. So I don't necessarily have a, <laughs> have a question here, but is that, is that kind of like – I'm on the right track here. That's kind of like the overarching repeating cycle here of, of, of what you're talking about in the book, right? Oops, excuse me. Uh, yeah, yeah, and um, I have an answer for you or a, additional uh, comment on that. And mm -hmm. uh, it would help to, I guess, circle back to this uh, thing we were uh, talking about uh, before about the Lear and Benowitz uh, deal. Where, yeah. you know, there was. They had that mysterious meeting, Benowitz uh, left ufology, and uh, you'll see where I'm going in a, with this in a few minutes to answer your question. I trust but, you. 
<laughs> if, I, if I remember, I'll get halfway through it and forget what the hell I was talking about. But <laughs> so in uh, '87, I think it was, I or '87, uh, '88, I talked about it in the book. There was this uh, conference in uh, Crestone, Colorado, and it, it was really just to get together some of these uh, ufologists. Among them were. Uh, Linda Howe and uh, John Lear and David Perkins and Christian Lambright and uh, Tom Adams, a bunch of different researchers, UFO researchers, uh, cattle mute uh, researchers. And at that time, uh, Tom Adams, who was, he's, he was like the preeminent uh, cattle mute dude at the time, he got a, a letter from... Uh, a lady claiming she had knowledge about uh, the Dulce underground base and uh, had met a, knew a couple of individuals, a couple guys that uh, had background in the intelligence community and security work that had uh, information about this base. And so this letter was passed on to uh, Tom Adams. Tom Adams didn't quite know what to do with it or didn't have a desire to uh, follow up on it. So he's the one who passed it on to uh, John Lear. And so John Lear looked into it, and he contacted this lady who went by the name of uh, Ann West to follow up on this. What, one thing that came out of this uh, meeting, as I recount in the uh, book, that uh, in Creston, Colorado, Lear wanted to put together like this uh, manifesto, call it, or a mission statement of their group that would, out, that would address the current state of affairs in ufology, what was yeah. going on there. And uh, they kind of came to an agreement that, yeah, uh, UFOs were somehow involved in the cattle mutilation phenomena, but Blair wanted to take it farther. He, he wanted to say in this manifesto that the aliens were invading the earth and all this uh, stuff, similar to what was the stories uh, about uh, Dulce Underground Base, et cetera. And nobody was really, uh, they couldn't come to an agreement, so he was kind of miffed. And he and Linda Moulton Howe left the conference uh, together, and it looked like what they were doing was following up on some more of this Benowitz uh, information. They went on a little road trip and met with a guy named Clifford Stone who'd been talking to Benowitz. So they were looking at getting at the bottom of all this. And so it was after this trip that uh, Lear met uh, Benowitz. You know, we're looking uh, like uh, 88, 89. Met him there at his house for three days. Then something weird uh, happened. Some speculate that uh, Lear basically, you know, and this is uh, just speculation made off with a bunch of uh, Benowitz's materials. And there was uh, a few things. One of the uh, items talked about over the years were the uh, X-rays or C-scans of Myrna Hansen's head that supposedly showed where she had been uh, implanted with some type of uh, device. So Lear was yeah. getting heavy into this whole Dulce-based stuff, and so he was interested in this letter from this lady who went by the name of Ann West 
he met with Ann West and uh, that, during that uh, period, and she shared with him the Dulce papers. And what they were is like eight pages of like handwritten notes and lurid drawings of the uh, underground base, et cetera, and told the story of this uh, security guard by the name of uh, Thomas Castello, who she claimed to have known, who uh, led a revolt in the base. There was a confrontation called the Dulce War where the uh, humans uh, with the government there uh, got into a battle with the aliens, and 66 of the uh, workers were killed by the aliens. Uh, Castello was able to escape because he had this cool thing called a flash gun that could uh, wreak havoc. So he made it out with a bunch of videos, supposedly, photographs, um, yeah. other stuff. So he became a whistleblower for Dulce Base. And so that's where the background material of the uh, Dulce Base story really took off and the Dulce, the Dulce papers, which John Lear promoted, which once again went back to some of the stuff Benowitz was writing in memos in the early 80s about some type of confrontation at a base he had heard about and his belief that there was this underground uh, base in Dulce. So this brings us to uh, kind of answering your questions. Also involved in this, it turns out, and as I reveal in the book, was a fellow by the name of Cal Levesque, who I mentioned uh, before, that kind of started me on this journey. And I lay out my belief that it was really Cal who pulled a lot of this uh, information together about Dulce and used uh, basically this lady, Ann West, whose real name was uh, Sherry Hinkle, to get the information out. Cal was always... Uh, he was kind of a man behind the scenes, a player in, uh, you know, uh, the paranormal and UFO research dating back uh, quite a few uh, years. And so Tal, under the name of Jason Bishop, this gets convoluted and confusing because there's different people who use the name of Jason Bishop, but he started he uh, kind of... Uh, embroidering upon uh, what was in the Dulce papers and putting out more information about Thomas Castello, the heroic security guard, et cetera, and started sharing this information with other researchers. And there was a number of them. One was a guy named Branton who became pretty popular, William uh, Hamilton, John Lear, Val Valerian. He had a major series. These guys were all prominent kind of names in ufology back then, and they all started uh, sharing different versions of this Dulce stories with a little tweak or twist here and there, but it was basically all the same information that was coming from uh, Cal Levesque, who was kind of hiding behind the scenes, and Cherry Hinkle and all these other folks started repeating this story, so it was coming from a bunch of different uh, directions where it looked like multiple sources were confirming the whole uh, Dulce-based story. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and that's why I was saying earlier, like, uh, you know, and I'm sure this kind of be the case if you could go back in time and talk to the people then, too, but it's like it's, it would be instructive for people who are new to the UFO field in the last few years 
to read this book and understand that the tactics that are used could be easily overlaid into what we're seeing today. A lot of people have quote-unquote sources, and they're getting information from people, and it's like, you all don't know if you're all getting it from the same fucking dude. Like, because you're not talking to each other. You keep all your sources secret. Like, this this could very easily and probably most likely is what's going on right now. So, to me, that's – I think it, it was it's, it would be instructive for, for people uh, who are new to the field to read a book like this so they can understand that uh, there's this multiple layers of, of, of shit going on here. And some um, of those sources – some of those sources got, from – some of those sources from back in the day are some of the sources that are putting stuff out there nowadays. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's pretty wild. Um, now I want to jump ahead a little bit to uh, the UFO cover up live. Do you? What what struck me was it was interesting. I, oh, I should write this down so I don't forget this. Uh, Later in the, I'll put this right in my notes here underneath. What made me laugh? Uh, we'll get to this one in a minute. But what made me laugh in the because I I just skimmed. I was going to read the book, so I don't need to read the chapter title. So I just want to jump right in. So, um, what what amused me is as I'm reading uh, in my notes originally, I had um, I had I had believe it or not, this is true, Adam. I had in my notes whatever happened to Jamie Chandra, and then <laughs> so you can imagine my delight. <laughs> As I'm reading the book, and I turn the page, and, and like chapter 20-something is titled, Whatever Happened to Jamie Chandra? I was like, oh, shit, this is great. So we'll, we'll get to Jamie Chandra in a minute. But the, the, you, you kind of answered my question within the book uh, when you're talking about UFO cover-up live, because you're talking about UFO cover-up live. This is what we're going to get into next. Um, and you mentioned that they had interviews with people on the street in Russia. And I'm like, what the fuck is that all about? <laughs> what? And I'm like, you know, I scribbled that down in my notes. Like, ask Adam about why the hell they're interviewing people on the street in Russia. Then later in the book, when you get a little deeper into UFO cover-up live, you mention that it was a joint U.S.-Russian presentation, which is really pretty wild for that time period. So I guess – um, I mean, the people listening know, I think, about UFO cover-up live. You can give a little background to it if you'd like to sort of catch them up to speed. Uh, you know, this was a Fox TV special. Um, it was kind of the culmination of a lot of this dis- disinformation where it was like it was going to blow the lid off of uh, the UFO program. It's for, for people who are real hardcore uh, saucer heads, you'll know that, um, you know, the – the, the 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 strawberry ice cream the fact that the, the fact yeah the claim that aliens like strawberry ice cream uh it comes directly from this program UFO cover up live it's it's sort of infamous notorious in the world of UFOs um and now as time gone by it's sort of taken on even more mythic proportions as we learn more about sort of the background the players in it so i guess talk like how did this who made this show how did this even get made in the first place and how the fuck did russia get mixed up in it, especially considering, you know, a big part of the book is sort of detailing how a lot of this is like spy versus spy. This is the U.S. trying to get an upper hand on, on Russian spies, trying to weed out Russian spies, Russia trying to trying to get information on U.S. stuff by, by getting it mixed up with UFO buffs. So it's like how – it seems like you, they would not want to work together on something like this. So what's the what's, – what's that angle to the show all about? Well, you need to talk uh, a little bit about Bill Moore mm-hmm. because I think he played a uh, large role in bringing this all about the UFO 
cover up uh, live, which was broadcast live. And what year was that? I think that was 89 uh, to late 88, 89, when all of this stuff seemed to be <laughs> coming to a head, you know. But so, 1988. Yeah. Bill Moore, uh, let's give a little background on uh, him because he's a key player in this. We talked about the uh, MUFON conference, obviously, where he uh, laid everything out. But he got involved with uh, – he uh, published the book about Roswell in 1980, uh, the Roswell incident, which basically everybody knows kind of the, the – uh, Outlines of that story about the uh, saucer crash and uh, uh, aliens taken from the wreckage, etc. And so that's how uh, Moore kind of got involved in or became a name in ufology with that uh, book. And he claims uh, when he was, you know, publicizing doing promotion for the book and. 1980, he was approached by an intelligence officer who went by the name of Falcon, which was a uh, cover name. And that kind of brought in eventually the whole aviary connections, uh, this group that they were all working together to get uh, bring about UFO disclosure, I guess, for uh, want of a better way of uh, explaining it. So in... Uh, we talk about confirming things that confirm stories, you know, or it looks like they confirm uh, UFO stories. In 84, the uh, MJ-12 papers uh, surfaced, which basically, you know, they talked about this briefing, this secret group named MJ-12 that was a government group looking into UFOs, uh, and this was in the form of a briefing uh, paper to Eisenhower that, uh, among other things, concern, uh, confirmed the Roswell crash. So that's pretty interesting. People have uh, pretty much uh, concluded that those uh, documents were fake. Who were Who's behind them? It's not sure. Was it Doty maybe or was it uh, Moore, Bill Moore? Who knows exactly? But at one point, uh, Falcon... Uh, basically uh, set up Doty to be the liaison with uh, Bill Moore and the whole uh, understanding arrangement uh, between them was that uh, Moore would help uh, keep an eye on different players in ufology, uh, you know, maybe infiltrate <laughs> a little bit to uh, keep tabs on these different civilian researchers who also worked uh, – as civilian contractors and interactions they might be having with uh, foreign nationals. That's one of one of the reasons why that uh, arrangement was. And in return, Doty and Falcon said they would share top-secret UFO uh, poop intel right. with uh, Moore. Because Bill Moore so, spoke Russian. That's key, I think, to the whole to the whole sort yeah. of like. How did he luck into this gig, if you will? It's like, well, he spoke Russian, so he would be a particularly uh, useful asset. Well, that's another interesting thing. And uh, only recently I heard this in a uh, Richard uh, Doty interview. He's still doing a few interviews now and then. And this was on Jimmy uh, Church's show, I believe. 
I think I wrote about this in the book was that Yeah, uh, that's where I learned it. Yeah. Yeah, and he was uh I guess Church was trying to pin down Dodie a little bit on actually how many assets did you have that uh infiltrated infiltrated and ufology and he said, Well, only two, you know, and Church was asking about nowadays and Dodie's saying, Well, he wasn't involved anymore and it, None that he knew of nowadays, but he stated there was two back then. One was uh, Wendell Stevens, who I get into a bit in the uh, book, and the other was uh, Bill Moore. And he said the reason uh, he became interested in Moore as part of his AFOSI duties, Air Force Office of the Special Investigations, really didn't have anything to do with UFOs as much as it did uh, contacts Bill Moore was having with uh, different uh, Russians uh, in the Soviet Union at that time, uh, scientists and journalists and these type of people. And that uh, it was also interesting that Moore was uh, fluent in Russian. He taught Russian and Spanish as a high school teacher before he got involved in uh, Ufology. So you see these uh, Russian uh, these connections with for, uh, Russian nationals, and there was a lot of involvement uh, with uh, Russians coming over here and uh, themselves infiltrating these UFO groups to, uh, you know, what uh, most likely was going on. They're trying to get information on stealth technologies and that type of uh, stuff. So. Anyway, we're talking about UFO cover-up live, and yeah, part of it, uh, this is 89, was that this was a joint U.S. and Russian-Soviet uh, Union broadcast, which uh, seems pretty odd in retrospect, because this was quite a few years before, uh, you know, the wall came down and uh, Soviet Union uh, was broken up. Yeah. And so, uh, do we know how there? that happened? Do we know like how how that even came about? <laughs> well, I would think um, Bill Moore must have had a uh, role in uh, bringing in. You know, they interview in the show a couple uh, Russians, a scientist and a journalist, yeah, yeah. cast. And uh, I'm kind of assuming those. I don't know for sure. Those were Bill Moore's contact, and this was all part of this greater counterintelligence uh, operation that was going on. This was like maybe the final phase of the counterintelligence operation where they laid all of this uh, information out to the public as part of, you know, part of it was this this information campaign. And I watched that uh, recently, and one thing I couldn't uh, figure out from the program were the names of these two individuals. You know, they were talking to people on the street too, but the uh, two main uh, Russian uh, scientists and journalists—they kind of said their name real fast, but the name never appeared on the screen. It was like, who the fuck are <laughs> were these guys? You know, we don't even yeah, know yeah. Uh, for sure that. Uh, so that's uh, all very odd. Was you know uh, the sh- the uh, program itself at times was pretty kind of cheesy, you know. <laughs> But was this something that was uh, 
approved by the U.S. government to have this uh, going on? Who knows? Sounds, but uh, sounds kind of iffy. Yeah. But maybe it was. It's hard to say. We don't. We don't really know how that all came about. That would be an interesting project in itself to uh, talk to the uh, principals behind that uh, program and find how it all came together. Moore later said that uh, he wasn't uh, thrilled with. Uh, how it uh, was presented and rolled out, and some of the information that appeared that that might have, you know, been a way of trying to <laughs> wash his own hands of his involvement in that uh, show because obviously he was he played a pretty big role in the uh, behind the scenes production of that, and he uh, he's interviewed a couple times in the show and. And he was also responsible for the footage of uh, Falcon and Condor that appear in uh, UFO cover-up live. And as it turned out, you know, that uh, people made a big deal about that uh, footage, and it was presented supposedly as live. They were talking live to these two intelligence agents uh, using these code names, Falcon and Condor, kind of in the shadows with their... Uh, Voices scrambled, who later turned out to be Doty and uh, another guy named Robert Collins, who had worked at uh, Kirtland and Wright Patterson Air Force Base, you know, revealing all these secrets about this uh, UFOs and the uh, U.S. government secret treaty with the uh, aliens. But as it turns out, and I talk about it in the book, it wasn't the live, you know, is that they actually displayed the footage of this, and it all came from a documentary that uh, Bill Moore and Jamie Chandere had been working on several years uh, subsequent to this uh, UFO cover-up live. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that as I actually went Googled this while I, when I was reading the book. Um, some enterprising investigative journalist who's more – not as lazy as me, should need to try and maybe try and track down Mike Farrell. He's still alive. He was the host of the show, Mash's Mike Farrell. I'd love to know his perspective on this. Maybe he would have some – it's been like almost 40 years or so, or 35 years, so maybe he's like in his 80s, so I don't know if he would even be much help. But it would be interesting to see if what, what he would have to say about that, um, sort of a unique sort of – unexpected role in UFO history that this guy had as the host of the show. So who knows, yeah. you know, what he was told, <laughs> you know, they might've brought him in, but like, you're going to be, you're going to be in the history books, dude. You're going to be the guy that breaks the, blows the lid off the UFO thing. Mike, this is the greatest thing that's going to happen to you <laughs> ever and all this other shit. So it would be interesting. Someone should try and uh, track him down and see if he remembers any of this. Um, now the other I mentioned this leading out to the other question, but uh, you do you do a great job of sort of trying to answer the question of where – do we know – I guess what's in the book is what we know, right? Jamie Shandor, he's pretty much a phantom. He kind of just vanished off the off the scene, you know, shortly shortly after, you know, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s or something like that. He certainly didn't stick around and remain a player in the in the UFO field. And then what's remarkable is like – the paranormal's kind of it's kind of like the you know those like sci-fi conventions where it's like if you had a bit part in in Babylon 5 you can get booked for a weekend in Mobile at fucking you know Mo, uh, Alabama con 
and and sign pictures right. of your of your of your scene from <laughs> that's I'm banking on that yeah. if, if we can if we can get Hill in the Hole to really take off you know a, a second career for me is just just appearing at these events uh, <laughs> reprising the role of Tiny I guess the point being that it's amusing in a sense where it's like Shandera never did the circuit he never tried to make a comeback he never um, you know he never sort of tried to tap into his role as a historical figure in the world of UFOs. He just vanished. Uh, presume, we don't even know if he's alive or dead. I presume he's still alive, but it's like nobody nobody seems to know anything about this guy anymore. It's pretty it's pretty wild. Or was that his real name? Jamie Chandere? <laughs> it's hard to say. Um, yeah, he got uh, Chandere uh, became involved with uh, Bill Moore in the uh, early 80s as his research partner. And uh, at that time, uh, Moore wanted to develop a uh, UFO documentary. That's why he reached out for Chandray. He supposedly had a uh, background in uh, television and movie uh, production, etc. And whatever documentary they were working on fell by the wayside, but they continued being uh, research partners. I think the documentary was probably some of that footage we saw of uh, Falcon and Condor because they dated back, like I said before, UFO uh, ever up live. And so it was uh, Chandra, who is uh, people have alleged he had uh, intelligence community contacts and in fact, uh, Bill Moore said uh, something Greg uh, shared with me. Bill Moore went to some meeting with some military mucky mucks with uh, Chandra at one point, and uh, some high-level spook came up to him, and Moore said, I don't know you, but we know him. <laughs> Moore was like, oh, okay. So Chandra... Supposedly had done some type of uh, work for the government at some point. It's really not uh, clear. But also, if you look, uh, you know, do do your Google search on Andre, you think you'd find some information there about him being a uh, film or TV producer. But uh, nothing's really there. The only uh, thing in IMDb is like some. Uh, the uh, horror movie that he played an extra in, not unlike you and the uh, Hill in the Hole. So there's the <laughs> Chandra uh, banal uh, connection. But so Chandra was the one who found the MJ-12 uh, papers landed on his doorstep. So that's a, another claim to fame. So, and so he and uh, Moore were partners throughout the 80s. And uh, in 89, when uh, Moore left the field, kind of Chandra somewhat disappeared, too. And in, you're making a lot of noise there. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I had to go out to my car. That's what I like about the show. I, I'm, on my, I'm on my walkable <laughs> phone, so I it's actually just out in my driveway. That's real the real cool. live radio. Wait, is it that loud? I didn't realize. <laughs> oh, I'm not. I'm not sweating you, but uh, I want to make sure you're there. So. Oh yeah, no, I'm listening. I'm listening. So Chandra and uh, 
94 was making some type of comeback, actually. And uh, he, uh, it's really not clear. There's an episode of Coast to Coast uh, AM with him on that period. And I think, yeah, interviewed by our, our man, uh, Art Bell. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Actually, I think you mentioned yeah. that in the book. Yeah, that raised my eyebrows when I read it in the book. I was like, what? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, and so he was—he had some new information about Roswell or some some angle here. It wasn't really clear from the uh, coast to coast AM, but Greg Bishop was—he uh, knew Chandray, and uh, he was uh, communicating with him during this uh, period. It's like ninety-four, ninety-five, and Greg was working on an interview of Chandray for his magazine, his zine, The Excluded Middle. Yeah. And uh, Chandray had, uh, let's see, how to pre- should I present this? He uh, claimed he had figured out the uh, truth of ETs or had seen something, and if Greg could, could uh, guess what that was, what type of evidence that was, and he, then Chandray would fill him in on the whole, whole scoop of what was going on. But Greg could never guess what it was. You know, did, did uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I remember that part did of the he book. Get yeah, documentation. Did he actually meet with an ET? Uh, he could never quite uh, figure out what was going on there. But at this time. And through the 80s and 90s, they were getting a bunch, him and more were supposedly getting these uh, coded messages, something called, I forget what it was, the bird code or something like this, kind of ties in with the aviary that were giving them. Bird droppings. I think they called them bird, I think it was called bird droppings in the book, right? These are the things from little postcards they were getting sent with like little coded information and shit. Yeah. And so uh, the last Greg uh, heard of Chandray was that he was following up on these leads and he was traveling to the uh, Washington, D.C., and it had something to do with the National Cathedral and uh, that he was going to meet some Mr. X or something and uh, a lot of shadowy shit like (laughs) this. It's hard to piece it all Altogether, so Greg had him set up uh, for an interview uh, during this period, and so he uh, called it, called uh, Chandray and uh, couldn't get get through on the uh, number, you know, for a couple weeks. And finally, uh, got through one day, and whoever answered the phone said, uh, uh, "Jamie Chandray, he doesn't." Uh, that person doesn't live here anymore. Please you know, <laughs> quit uh, bothering me. Which seemed like it, it was odd to Greg that they turned around that uh, phone number, gave it to somebody else in such a short period of time, and then Chandray was gone. It's like, where was yeah. he? But then the chapter, whatever happened to Jamie Chandray in the book, has to do with fast forward another. Uh, decade or so with the uh, U- UFO Congress uh, conference and uh, God, I'm forgetting the years now. It's like 
2007 or so around there, the whole Serpo thing was going on. Doty once again got involved with, with uh, Bill Ryan, et cetera. And this was another Jimmy Church show, probably that same one I mentioned before where he's talking about uh, Doty, where uh, Doty claimed that Chandra showed up uh, and was making all these wild, weird uh, claims that he was like a mind control victim and been abducted by the military or something along those lines. And I thought, well, that's weird. I never heard that story about Chandra uh, showing up. And I think for some odd reason, Doty just uh, made that up because I talked to Greg Bishop and Mark Pilkington, who were also at that conference, and they said, no, nah, Chandra wasn't there. If he would... He would have been there. We would have uh, noticed. So, who knows why? Uh, you know, Doty would extend that uh, BS. We gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens! What kind of radio show is this? Yeah, well, it's just funny in a sense where it's like in a world where so many people want to be UFO famous. Uh, Someone who is like, who could legitimately just pop out and be like, kind of cause a, cause a stir and be UFO famous. He's he's all set. You know, we don't know. I'd love. That that's one of those things where it's like I'd love uh, for. You know, I know Greg kind of still knows Bill Moore, so it's like Bill Moore's another guy. But it's like Bill Moore and Jamie. I'd love to hear from those guys nowadays and, and find out. Uh, a little more about about all that stuff, especially Jamie Chandra, because at least Bill Moore opened up to Greg. We don't know Jamie Chandra is like like a chameleon or whatever. He's a cipher. We don't know really anything, um, you know. Uh, so that would be interesting. Now, one of the things I <laughs> I, I picked up in the book uh, comes from when you were at lunch with uh, Tal and uh, John Rhodes. And you you wrote something. You reflected on the conversation, and, um, and I realized. I said to myself, I made a big mistake when I got into this wacky field because you say that here you are at breakfast with is a breakfast for three people, you and these two guys, and you're exchanging information. None of you are using your real names, and it's like throughout the book, it's this recurring theme, this really like weird thing. It's like shit. I should have used a fake name. I should have started with a fake name. But uh, I didn't, so, so um, I don't know if that's like a relic of that era. That was part of it. That you know, then I, <laughs> then I got a little paranoid, and I'm like, is Jack Brewer really his name? What about Aaron Gullius? Do we do we know if do we know if Aaron Gullius is his name, or is this some kind of confabulation? So so um, it yeah. seems like nowadays most people use their real names, but back then. Like, every person in the fucking book, like we talked about, I mentioned our old friend Mike Younger in the book. He's kind of a bit character, but, like, just out of nowhere, you're talking about Mike Younger, and he passed away, and it's like you kind of mentioned, like, yeah, it turns out his real name was, like, Billy, Billy Suff-and-Suff or whatever. And it's like, it's like yeah. what the fuck? What, why is everyone using a fake name? Like, what the fuck is this all about? So that's that's really my question. Why... What's with all what's with all the fake names? What what is that all about? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> well, people uh spending these stories a lot of times <laughs> wanna really own up to it when all's said and done, like 
Ann West was really Cherry Hinkle. The, actually, I think uh, Talavesque was Talavesque's uh, true name as far as I can tell. But, uh, yeah, it's a lot of people were uh, not saying Jamie Chandray. Uh, I'd be surprised if that was his real name. But, you know, there's a lot of spooky uh, stuff going on in the field. And it, it was like uh, with Talavesque. Use, that's where, God, it gets uh, so damn uh, confusing. Calavesque, uh, using the uh, name of Jason Bishop III, was uh, put out uh, a report that had to do with uh, Gabe Valdez and some others doing some recon out at Dulce of a uh, what it was believed was some type of uh, stealth aircraft crash or UFO uh, crash and so when this report was written up it was put out by Jason Bishop and Talavesque was the one promoting this but uh, Talavesque uh, wasn't at that uh, recon there was somebody uh, else there who was also going by the name of uh, Jason Bishop but uh, anyway uh, after that Tal under Jason Bishop started putting out all this uh, Dulce Base uh, material as uh, Jason Bishop III. Bishop is, uh, or Levesque is Bishop in French. So he was uh, basically obscuring where the information was coming from, you know, trying to uh, confuse people. And in Tal's case, uh, by using the Jason Bishop uh, alias, he was trying to like uh, remove himself from the story a little bit because like I said, yeah. he was passing on to these other people who had fake names like Branton <laughs> and uh, Val Valerian. That was a name for, uh, what was the guy's name? Yeah, they all, they all had these uh, names and they claimed to be in the military and uh, but a lot of times they weren't, you know, so to... Yeah, yeah it was really wild. It was really... Uh, it, it, the, the book keeps coming on and on. It's like, there's another guy, you know, you mention him, and then they're like, it tur- you know, it turns out his real name was... And it's like, what the fuck? Like, what is going on here? <laughs> I guess it, 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 it seems like maybe... Maybe it's sort of a relic of that era, in a sense, where you could get away with that because yeah, well, it, you didn't yeah, have the like internet and all that. There was the uh, Mr. X thing for a while, you know, Mr. X. I don't know if you remember the uh, books, but it was like uh, some street cred if you could, you know, present yourself as uh, somebody who was in the uh, (laughs) military or whatever, intelligence circles, but uh, he needs to go by the name of Commander X, I think was his uh, name. And, yeah, people are into the Commander X books. Wow, he knows some stuff. It, wow, he's confirming the Dulce Base story. That's pretty incredible. And then it turned out a lot of the people, uh, Commander X was a number of writers like Jim Keith. Uh, Tim Beckley <laughs> has also talked to writing some of the Commander X material, you know. And then they, yeah. So that was a way if uh, you were a researcher and you got some – crazy stuff about Area 51 or whatever uh, reptilians and you presented as coming from a military insider who can't uh, 
give his real name because his life would be in danger. That yeah, that's always the hook there, you know. That's why. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. one of them. But these were like yeah, like I like I was saying, a lot of these. These were just run-of-the-mill people in UFO world that were like, yeah, my name's not really Tim Benall. It's actually like Randy Carruthers. It's like, why the fuck? (laughs) Why don't you just go by Randy Carruthers then, dude? What's wrong with you? So it was interesting. I I just was really amused by that. And, uh, you know, it's it's cool. uh, Yeah, it it was, I think, a relic of that time, yeah. Yeah, I think... There's always that thing, like, people don't want to get associated with UFOs and stuff like that. Probably, that was probably a big part of it, too, back then, uh, mm-hmm. you know. But, yeah, very, very uh, interesting. And it's not lost to me, folks, the irony that I'm asking Adam go rightly this question, because, of course, he's not, <laughs> he uses that the name as well. Um, my favorite part of the book was this guy who calls into the Billy Goodman show, and he's unloading. This crazy. He just comes. He just starts the conversation in media res. Like he's just like, so I'm on the elevator going down seven miles, and it's like, <laughs> what the fuck? And, and he's unloading all this information uh, on Billy Goodman, who was kind of like a mini Art Bell back in the day. We're going to get into Billy Goodman now, folks. But uh, but the, this is the setup. So my, this is my favorite part of the book. So this guy calls in the Billy Goodman show, and he's unloading all this shit. And and he's telling about how he's like getting involved in underground bases and all this shit, and he's got to blow the whistle, and he's someone told him he's got to call this guy. And then he's like, so between you and me now, this is just between you and me. And Billy Goodman's <laughs> like, sir, sir, uh, you're on the air right now. And he's like, what are you talking about? You mean other people know about this? And he's like, yeah, you've just told, like, the world. You're on, you're on live radio right now. And he's like, oh, Jesus oh Christ, uh, oh, no, oh, my God, wait a minute, you mean this is being broadcast? And, oh, my God, laugh my ass off at that part of the book, oh, my God. <laughs> I hope, I, you'll have, if, you, if you know if that's online somewhere, please send it to me, because I would love to hear that moment on, on the Billy Goodman show, because it's just so <laughs> funny. Um, so talk a little bit, I had never heard... Of Billy Goodman, believe it or not, considering that uh, you know that that I'm a big time paranormal radio sort of uh, aficionado, um, I'm sure I'm sure the name had crossed my path, but this was the most I had heard of Billy Goodman um, to date. Let's say so. You know, I'm yeah. obviously familiar with Art Bell and Coast to Coast, and uh, you know Bill Cooper and Shadow of the Time, and um, you know, a lot of the sort of uh, a lot of the early stuff, obviously Long John, Long John Neville, and stuff like that. But Billy Goodman, I didn't do again like to to, to some other enterprising young uh, young writer who's trying to make a name for themselves. I would love to read a book sort of on the history of these sort of fringe radio programs. So, but but Billy Goodman was a new character to me. Um, having read the book. So talk a little bit about this Billy Goodman character. I guess he predates Art Bell. He kind of, uh, he was kind of the precursor to Art Bell, uh, it seems, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, so we're talking, once again, that period, uh, 88, really 89, and uh, it was kind of a short-lived uh, phenomenon with the Billy Goodman happening it didn't last all too long, but um, he was based out of uh, Las Vegas. And, yeah, he and Art Bell uh, knew each 
other back in the day. They're both longtime uh, radio guys, and many uh, have pointed to or suggested that uh, it was really Billy Goodman that might have uh, got Art interested in going down, you know, the UFO rabbit hole. But so, you know, of course, I've always been into this woo-woo crazy stuff and also listening to uh, AM radio talk shows for many years, you know. And so in that period, uh, 89, I had the GE Super Radio and uh, could tune into pretty pretty good radio and pick up stuff, especially late at night, uh, pick up broadcasts from other parts of the uh, country and one night I happened to tune in to uh, Billy Goodman and the show at that time early on was called The Thing and it was cut you know it was pretty wild uh, free will and took calls and he was looking at early on he had a fascination with uh, Elvis Presley was Elvis Presley still alive and looking at the ghost stories and he had some character named uh, Elvis Presley Jr. <laughs> who would show up on the uh, show and had this cast of characters and crazy people calling in. So this was around the time that the uh, Bob Lazar story uh, surfaced with, first on uh, television with uh, George Knapp's interview. And then uh, Billy Goodman got interested in it and they, he started bringing on a lot of these uh people uh, a bunch of interviews and I have a lot of uh, the audio files uh, and some of these you can find on YouTube I'm going to post a few at uh, some point but uh, so he started bringing on these uh, characters like Lazar and different uh, ufologists uh, during that uh, period and documenting uh, the revelations coming out of Area 51, which became this (laughs) huge story. And uh, Goodman was really ground zero for uh, a lot of this. And uh, he started, uh, Goodman and others uh, started going out to uh, Area 51. They'd meet at the Rachel Bar and Restaurant, which later became the Little alien and they do these bus trips where they go out to these spots that uh, people were seeing the uh, saucers, you know, and a lot of this was the information coming from Bob Lazar and John Lear that uh, led them to the uh, entry points and some of the viewing sites. So it became a huge frickin' deal and they started having uh, conferences at the Little Alien and, uh, but yeah, I would listen to, uh, the Billy Goodman happened, and it was always crazy. You'd hear, you name it, uh, Lazar, John Lear, uh, Bill Cooper, just uh, <laughs> getting yeah, drunk yeah. It sounded like it. a real, uh, a real murderer's <laughs> row of, of wild people. And uh, and so it became this uh, community, and they uh, having these gatherings out there, and. Uh, Noriu Hayakawa was, was another uh, player, and Anthony Hilder, where they set up this uh, basically a group that wanted to uh, reveal the secrets of uh, what was going on at Area 51. This is at the same time they were getting uh, started getting push 
pushback from Wacken Hut and all these security forces out there. So it was a really uh, heady time, and everybody thought, well, <laughs> this is it, man. UFO disclosure is happening. We're right on the cusp of this whole thing uh, breaking open. And uh, and so as this was going on, uh, for some reason, you know, uh, Goodman's show started out, I write about it in the book, it was at like reasonable hours from maybe uh, 10 p.m. to uh, 2 a.m., but then he started getting threats. Supposedly that was the uh, word bomb threats or whatever. He was getting too close to the uh, truth, and the hours changed from like uh, 2 a.m. to 4 a.m., and I could still kind of (laughs) tune in to listen to, but I had a real job too. And then... uh, Eventually, it was just like some obscure hours, 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. in the morning. Then he disappeared, you know, and the the whole buzz was that, yeah, he had been forced out by the uh, man for uh, revealing too much uh, too soon, and that was kind of the end of the uh, Billy Goodman happening. It only uh, really lasted about a year or so, but became a huge... uh, popular success, you know, which didn't explain why he got ran off the air or they gave him the crummy hours, you know. He, uh, for some reason... Yeah, it's interesting because you you mentioned in the book that he, like, resurfaced later in Providence. I don't know. I think, I don't recall off the top of my head now if you said that he tried to revive the show or if he was just doing something completely different, but it's like talking about Jamie Shannon. It's like, here's another kind of interesting character from that era and it's like i couldn't tell you i really just learned more about billy goodman from the book so i haven't even really looked into it i haven't even done so much as a google search but it's like he's certainly not somebody you know you'd think in this era again people want to be ufo famous like here's a guy an icon in a sense a legend of his time from who predated art bell talk about street cred in the world of uh of ufos it's like this guy could launch a podcast tomorrow, and 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 you know people would be like, oh, what's yeah, this is this is cool? Billy Goodman's back. Oh my god, you know. It's like, but now nah, this guy's just yeah. vanished. You know. I mean, if I had to make a bet just based on the time period and how we were like thirty or twenty five, thirty five years removed, it's like this guy may not even be with us anymore. But it's certainly he didn't stick around and try and become a part of the field. No, he's he's gone. Actually, I heard about his. Uh death he got cancer uh oh that sucks huh yeah more like 2005 or so and i actually heard it on uh coast to coast am art bell mentioned him in one of the programs he had just heard about billy goodman's death and they were uh friends supposedly and uh art didn't say much <laughs> about uh being influenced but obviously he saw what was going on there, how that he became. It was kind of like a regional uh, sensation, you know, this show. It wasn't syndicated. It was out of Las Vegas, but it was one of those uh, stations that had a radio signal where late at night, you know, it traveled yeah. into several states, and that's how he became kind of the, uh, re- a regional uh, star. Yeah, yeah. What I'm sure is lost on a lot of young people listening is that, uh, yeah, back in the day, like these high-powered AM stations in some of the big cities, like on the overnight, 
but there's a technical reason why. I don't know exactly what it is, but like on the overnight, their their signals are like boosted because it's probably because there's less mm-hmm. shit on in the air or something. I don't know why, but but yeah, so you know people yeah. used to talk about it. You know, if you, you, you know, up in Massachusetts, you could get a station from like Louisiana somehow, <laughs> like in yeah. the middle of the night. It was <laughs> it was wild, you know. So it, uh, yeah, it was I sometimes totally, think I was born totally, in the wrong era. It was totally cool. I wanted to go out there because of that. I didn't go out to Area 51 at that time, but that's how a lot of people uh, got interested in it, you know, and they started coming from other parts of the states for these big get-togethers to see what the hell is going on out there. Another interesting thing, and I'll post this uh, clip, is that uh, Cal Levesque, I'm talking about how he's a behind-the-scenes player in promotion promoting a lot of this stuff. He had a connection with uh, Bill Cooper, and he told me that uh, this was during the time in 89 that uh, Cooper was still in Los Angeles, and so Cal was living there. And they would get together, and they would, uh, when Cooper was doing some of Billy Goodman's show, they'd, they'd get together a group and get some booze and pizza and weave these tales and uh, Tal even told me that he appeared on Billy Goodman's show a couple times. And I went, hmm, I never remember. Uh, I didn't say this to him, but I never remembered him being on the uh, show. That seems like something I would uh, remember. And so I got all these old clips and files, and occasionally, I'd, especially when I was writing the book, I'd put them, put them on while I was writing. And there was this one character who became infamous known as Yellow Fruit. And he was uh, supposedly a security worker there at Area 51. And uh, there was an uh, alien, there was an underground base, and there was kind of the same arrangement as Dulce with a group uh, called the Benevolent Ones. But also there was alien greys there. Supposedly there was a conflict. And at one point, much like the Dulce base confrontation, and the humans and the benevolent ones chased the greys out of there, et cetera. This yeah. <laughs> information that came from Yellow Fruit. And Yellow Fruit, that name and character, appeared in the writings of Branton, who was writing about uh, Dulce and Area 51, who was basically getting his information from Talavesk. So anyway, I'm listening to this interview, and it features Bill Cooper and Yellow Fruit called in. Oh, we got Yellow Fruit on the radio right now. Yellow Fruit, what's going on out there in Area 51? Yellow Fruit with, uh, you know, get into whatever the deal was. And as I'm listening, I go, that fucking sounds like Talavesk, man. Uh, and more, and I became convinced. Yeah, it was Tal, and he was basically promoting similar stories. You know, with the Tom Castello uh, story about a security worker. You know, so it was kind of out of the uh, same playbook. Now, there's other episodes with Yellow Fruit, which makes it confusing, where it's a different voice, <laughs> somebody else pretending to be uh, Yellow Fruit, but on. At least that one episode, I'm pretty sure it was Tal Levesque one night yeah. when he was hanging out with Bill Cooper. It's, uh, yeah, I'd like to, I'm going to have to get on and see if maybe there's some uh, of those shows on YouTube or something. That would be pretty cool uh, to 
check out. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. One of the things that kind of tripped me up mentally as I'm reading the book, I wanted you to sort of elaborate on. Maybe you can explain how this works. Um, when you're talking about the Serpo case, uh, you mentioned, I believe it was Victor Martinez ran the email server thing. And mm-hmm. he would get the emails, and they said, leave the emails as they are and just print them, Victor. And he yeah. Yeah. Um, felt compelled because it was like a mathematical mistake. It was like uh, the Serpo whistleblower quote unquote said uh, I think they said like twelve people went to Serpo, uh four died, two stayed and eight came back. And it's like, well wait a minute, that's fourteen, that's not twelve. And so he corrected it and then uh this pissed off the whistleblower and he kinda cut out Victor Martinez and moved on to a different person to be the pusher of the Serpo story. And the reasoning I think Greg uh our mutual good friend Greg Bishop sort of uh elucidated on this. The the reasoning is that like these mistakes are left in these these disinformation packets, if you will, disinformation materials, these these um, mistakes are left there as clues. But I didn't quite understand, like, clues for what? Like, what is what? – I mean, obviously, I guess maybe we're not supposed to, <laughs> supposed to know what the clue is, but maybe you can sort of shed more light on this. Like, what is – what, what's the – what's going on there with the mistakes? What is What is the purpose of that? I don't know, Tim. <laughs> that's, <laughs> okay. uh, Greg, that's that's Greg's analysis, and that's what jumped out with him. We need to ask him. Yeah, he was as Greg said. It was like uh, something. Those misspellings and information would be a uh, clue to people who knew about this operation. And yeah, I I, I don't know for sure, but. They were important that they'd be left in there as, according to the uh, source, Request Anonymous, who later it appears turned out to be uh, Richard Doty. All right. Well, next time I talk to Greg, which will probably be like later tonight, um, I'll have to ask him about that. But, yeah, yeah, it is uh, – yeah, someone – Jack Copley in the chat says, isn't the idea with the clues – that the person seeding the false information can be traced, like how it moves from person to person. That's I don't know. I'm really I'm I'm quite puzzled by it to be honest. So it's like unless, uh, yeah, unless it's sort of like some kind of calling card to the other people <laughs> that so so someone would know. Okay, well like if there's a math mistake in it, then you know it's it's been it comes from AFOSI or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So it's like who knows? I don't really know, but it's very. It struck me as particularly strange and the kind of thing that now going forward, whenever I see some <laughs> some kind of big breaking UFO news, I'm going to now look for mistakes. I'm going to like say, oh, wait a minute now. It turns out like, oh, they said this happened at an Air Force base in this town, but it turns out the Air Force base is in the town two towns over. And it's like, oh, is, that a, is that an honest mistake or is that done intentionally as some kind of – uh, you know, hidden hand message. So worth uh, yeah. worth keeping an eye on. And that, um, that kind of stuff, cut. that kind of stuff showed up in other that Doty was involved with. One was uh, called the Weitzel letter. That uh, I'm trying to remember it uh, was about a UFO sighting that uh, happened somewhere in New Mexico, maybe. Uh, trying to remember. It was stated as Cimarron, New Mexico, or somewhere 
in New Mexico. And as I later discovered, uh, talking to uh, Greg Valdez and other people, that actually that letter was talking about Dulce, but they, for some reason, you know, and it was a kind of a hoax letter about a real sighting somebody had, but they changed a lot of the uh, particulars in it for one reason or another. And, yeah, part of it was putting that information out there and finding out uh, who else had witnessed that event and, uh, you know, by putting out some not quite accurate information, you could find out uh, from other witnesses if they that they could tell you the the real story, perhaps, you know, so who knows? Yeah, that would make sense, yeah. There's a lot of levels to this uh, disinformation. Yeah, it's kind of like how cops hold back a little bit of information that way on a crime, like uh, like a murder. That way, if somebody comes in and makes a false confession, they can weed out whether or not uh, they, you know, if they know shit that no one, the public doesn't know about the murder, then you know you've got the guy. But if they're just repeating stuff yeah. that's been in the paper, you don't, you don't necessarily know if you really have the uh, person or you just have a false confession. Um. Well, we're kind of we're heading toward the close. We got a few more big questions here for you. So, uh I guess one thing I'm hesitant to go here, but it's like it's always sort of struck me and I talked about it um we did a tribute show to my dear friend Stan Friedman. And no one loves with the exception probably of Paul Kimball. I don't think anyone in UFO world loves Stan Friedman as much as I did. So, it it almost hurts me to bring this up, which is why which is why I actually skipped over it in my notes um until now, but I, but we talked about this on the tribute show, and the three of us were all kind of mystified by this ourselves. So maybe you can, like, I don't know, do some armchair psychology or something. Like, I, I, we were always kind of wondering, like, Stan, he just hung on to that MJ-12 thing way past the expiration date. Like, he was the only guy yeah. I knew who still championed MJ-12 right up until the end when it was like, Everybody, it, 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 I don't think anybody in the field of UFO world, uh, you know, believes MJ-12 anymore. So it was like it always mystified me. And, and the other, the guys, Aaron and, and and Paul, were just as sort of baffled as as I was about like why he was so adamant that MJ-12 was real. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, because there's a part of me. I don't want to go there because I love the guy so much. But it's like, was he like working a, an angle with this? Was <laughs> you know, was he was he trying to promote MJ12 for for reasons uh, you know beyond just selling books or whatever? Like, is it was there some kind of nefarious reason to push the MJ12? Because he was the only one still driving it, or was he just such a, or, or was it like sunk cost that he just put so much time and effort into it that he couldn't, uh, you know, he couldn't give up the ghost? That was MJ-12. I mean, what do you think? It's it's a really it's one of those perplexing sort of questions that that well, yeah. again we won't really ever probably know the answer to. Yeah, part of it might have been his personal investment in the story. You know, it's kind of what uh, made him or got him involved in ufology. But he also, you know, I mean, he was a really smart dude, but he might have got uh, played to a certain extent because. As I talked about in the uh, book, uh, he was uh, working with uh, Bill Moore, you know, prior to the MJ-12 
papers uh, coming out. Right, right, right. He was super, yeah, him and Bill Moore were like super tight. That's the part that always kind of, and I remember I asked him in one of my early interviews with him, like, about all that, but he didn't really get as deeply as obviously all of us would have liked. So to me, it was always like, okay, wait a minute. So Bill Moore's working part and parcel with the government. It's like, but you don't, you didn't know any of that? And it's, to me, it was always sort of like, ah, I hope that's the case, man. I really hope that's the case because I love Stan. I don't, want, I don't want to think that he was like working a disinformation angle for fucking 40 years on everybody with, mm-hmm. with a lot of this stuff. No, I, I don't think so, but uh, they were developing together for one reason or another uh, this list of, uh, you know, before the MJ-12 documents came out, that if there were uh, people in the government who knew about the Roswell crash in 1952, who would those people be? So they were developing these names like whoever, what's his name, uh, there's a list of uh, the MJ-12 players, and they they had come up with these names or probable candidates of uh, people in the government in the UFO know so to speak, and uh, so when the MJ-12 papers came out, it listed those people, and uh, at that point, you know, uh, that, that might have been just more confirm- confirmation, confirmation. and yeah, then Stan bought into it, so he, you know, wanted to believe it, believe it look for inf- other information to uh Confirm that, you know. Yeah. Well, I don't know what else. It all, yeah, that seems odd to me too, because you have someone like uh, Friedman who uh, looked into other cases, you know, who claims of Bob Lazar, and pretty diligently looked through uh, the documentation on Lazar and researched that, and found it was pretty uh, sketchy, you know. So he was. Uh, could be a, a pretty diligent uh, researcher when uh, you know he wanted to be, and uh, so yeah, who knows? Yeah, but yeah, he, it was really but, weird. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, he certainly wasn't pushing the Bob Lazar story. Uh, he, yeah, I talked about that with him too at the time, because not at the time, but uh, in one of our later conversations where it was like, for people. The you know there are a lot of people like skeptics and everything that kind of ripped on Stan as like a true believer. And it's like if he was a true believer, if he was like if he was like if, if he if he was uh, completely just pro UFO one hundred percent, he would never have done what he did with Baldazar. So it's like he he seemed like an honest you know he seemed like an honest shooter, which make again makes which makes the whole MJ twelve thing all the more baffling. But uh, it's one of those things again that we'll probably uh, never really know. The full story. Um, now well, I kind of get the impression. God, uh, I was going to say, ultimately, you could see him as a uh, target of that disinformation campaign. That uh, oh, definitely. Bill Moore was involved with, you know, and so he's working with Moore. And he he didn't. Uh, I doubt that he really knew that about the disinformation angle that was going on. Obviously, but. Uh, he knew Moore had contacts with the governments, and he was getting these uh, documents that uh, looked, you know, uh, at first blush, pretty impressive, you know. And yeah, Moore could, 
uh, named different uh, people in the government he was working at and showed different type of evidence that seemed to be confirming uh, you know, what they were looking into. Maybe it was a uh, this was all part of a uh, long-term operation, you know, that uh, Friedman was on the business end of. Of course, if we talk to uh, our friend Greg Bishop, uh, you know, he always uh, believes that uh, Moorhead shot straight with him as well and that he he wasn't intentionally uh, feeding disinformation, that he was also kind of uh, someone who was played in this whole episode. That's that's where... It all gets pretty confusing and convoluted sometimes to figure out uh, who was in on the uh, disinformation, who was a victim of it, who was just somebody who... uh, Right, exactly. uh, You know, it's hard to say. Uh, Red Pill Junkie in the chat uh, claims that Stan worked in secret program meant to reverse... reverse engineer UFO technology and that he only began talking about it by the end of his life. I've never heard that at all, so I'm I'm asking Redfield where he got that uh, story from because I've never heard that about Stan. Um, Certainly, uh, he says in Greg's interview, also on Valet's Forbidden Science 4. All right, well, um, that's entirely possible because the the nuclear technology stuff that uh, he was doing was certainly cutting-edge stuff, and uh, it's sort of definitely seemed to go black right when he got into UFO into the UFO field. That's what led him to get into the UFO field, that the nuclear uh propulsion system went went under. So that whole that mm-hmm. whole period always kind of struck me as sort of strange in a way where it's like, ah, well, we won't even <laughs> we won't go too much too much deeper into that. Um so now I guess this is sort of an overarching question. I'm sure it doesn't really bother you too much, but I guess were you reticent at all to? I mean, a lot of the most of the people, a lot of the people in the book are dead, or they've left the UFO world. But were you concerned at all, sort of, with like telling tales out of school with this, with this book? In a way, it was kind of like you kind of shine a light on how a lot of the machinations of of, of UFO world back in the day were a lot of of, of, of hooey. Um, were you concerned? Like, has anyone has Tal written to you annually, or I think Martin Cannon's still hanging around? Has anyone from from the book reached out to you and been like, "Hey, man, you know, why why are you telling everybody this is all this is all this is all a ruse?" Yeah, with the uh, Tal Levesque uh, revelations, uh, for many years, he uh, Tal had strung me along with. Uh, you know, I'd always suspected that uh, basically the Thomas Castello's uh, character was a composite character based on Tal and maybe uh, Paul Benowitz, and that uh, Tal helped uh, construct this whole Wilsey-based mythos. And I'd ask him about it over the years, and he'd always tell me, no, Tom Castello was a uh, real person, but then, you know, over time he'd share more and more information about the story, how he got involved in it. And I kept uh, poking and prodding him over the years. And it, eventually he told me, he admitted that, yeah, he had helped uh, construct that uh, 
the whole Dulce Days uh, story. And as a uh, reporter or journalist, I've heard this, uh, you know, and he he was always uh, telling me that uh, certain things I should not repeat He'd, on the emails. He'd, like, uh, print it in red and bold. Do not, you know, destroy this email after you're done, et cetera, et cetera, you know. But I basically... <laughs> I basically caught him fibbing to me for years about the Tom Castello story. And once that's the case, you know, so I've been told I'm not a real journalist, but once he knows <laughs> you can document that somebody's uh, was lying to you about certain aspects of something, then all bets are off and you go, go forth and tell everything you know about, you know, what that person shared with you. So that was kind of my approach with uh, Tao. And uh, I, I was hesitant about the book. I knew he wasn't going to like it when it came out, you know, for sure. <laughs> and uh, But I discovered once I had written it and were getting ready to go publish it that he had died in 2018. So, I mean, that kind of resolved that issue of having to uh, deal with a mad towel about uh, me uh, sharing certain secrets, certain things he might uh, might not want to have uh, revealed. Um, yeah, well, that's good. I'll be interested to see if you hear anything else from people about it. Um, now, have you... I guess what I was saying earlier about this disinformation technique, in a sense, like, has it, I presume it's sort of changed now with this Internet world, where it's like, before, they could seed some information to somebody, but it could take weeks or months. I think at one point, I think you mentioned, like, they, the guys who got the MJ-12 documents, uh, Moore and Chandra, they, like, sat on them for months. And I think it won't, I think it also in the book you mentioned, uh, that Doty gave Moore some documents to give to Benowitz, and he he like dragged it out for so long that finally, yeah, uh, Doty was like, "Dude, you got to give him these documents, or it's over. We're not working with you anymore." Yeah. Um, what I guess what this new I guess uh, what I'm wondering about is like this modern age where it's like all they need to do is send an email to someone, the right person, and next thing you know, it's all over the internet like within a day or two. So has mm-hmm. it, do you think it's sort of changed the, the technique in a way or just sped it up with now with a much larger audience and you can get instantaneous results? Well, yeah, now if you're Russians, for instance, trying to see disinformation or government spooks or whatever, you know, you don't have to go to a UFO conference. You just uh, Infiltrate into one of these, uh, like a UFO Facebook group, and uh, you could do it there, for instance. And I think that's happening uh, on a certain level with uh, social media now. You don't, you don't <laughs> need to operate like they were in the past back in, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s by actually right. sending out uh, people to interact with. Uh, different ufologists, for instance, if you're trying to run some type of uh, play or uh, counterintelligence deal against uh, uh, ufologists, you don't have to meet them in person. All this stuff can be done social media, on the web. Same thing with, you know, what we're seeing with uh, 
QAnon or whatever uh, different uh, people being radicalized, as they say on the web these days. By, yeah, yeah. By uh, it, players that are uh, disingenuous or pushing some type of uh, agenda that isn't yeah, exactly. uh, obvious, yeah. Right, right, right. Well, it's like, you know, it's funny. Uh, you can go a little bit over the hour, right? We're, we're heading up to, like, we got, like, oh, yeah, four yeah. minutes left. So, okay, all right. Um, long, yeah, it's funny because... That, as long as that British lady doesn't start hassling us. Oh, yeah, let, she's going to come on. Let me add something else real quick. Um, so, I'm talking about... Uh, you know, Facebook groups, uh, UFO groups or whatever. And one thing that emerged from one of these groups was that Wilson document. Right, right. Which was, which was pretty interesting. You saw a lot of the same characters, it appears, that were involved in pushing that out, you know, date back to the uh, aviary and that, that group. And curiously enough, uh, one of the characters named in that Wilson document was a uh, character named uh, McGarity. I'm trying to remember his first name. Uh, I hate I hate when I uh, forget names exactly. But uh, McGarity was also the guy who was at. Uh, I talked about that. There was a recon of uh, Dulce that. Uh, was published back in the day, and McGarity was <laughs> using the name of Jason uh, Bishop, who was also the name of Cal used. <laughs> but this McGarity character, you know, who's like, he was involved in all that Dulce stuff that intersected with the aviary back in the uh, day. He also appears in that uh, Wilson document, which is like, you know, it just uh, you, you see these same characters time and again uh, involved with these uh, these same stories that seem to uh, you know pushing UFO disclosure right around the uh, right around the corner that never uh, really pans out. What, what yeah, exactly well, it's funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I was gonna say in a sense uh you know you've been around this for a lot longer than i have um and i've been around this now for almost 20 years scary as it is um so you know you see these there she is you see these young guys and i have no you know i have really no uh i have no qualms with the with the young people or whatever uh getting mixed up in all this it's exciting good for them that you know that's how I, everybody has to be young when they get involved with this at first right so um I'm all, I'm all in favor of that, but like they, they're so excited about what's going on right now, and they, they see guys like you and me who are like, well, look at dude, this is like uh, I mentioned to you. I don't know, uh, I don't know if you saw it uh, in the group chat today. We were in a group chat uh, that I mentioned there was a there's a monologue from like a 1989 UFO special uh, that you quote in the in the book where it's like you could lift that monologue and place it in 2021 and it would be the exact same it would fit perfectly with what's going on now it's like the UFO mystery has pa- has puzzled people for decades um now we're really close to a breakthrough and there's people in the government who want to tell us what's going on 
um, and we're right on the cusp of it, and this is such an exciting time. And this was like 1989, folks. This was <laughs> this was 1989, and you could say the same thing about about 2021. It's the cycle the cycle repeats itself, and um, it's made perfectly clear in the book. And and uh, thank you to all the live listeners. You're gonna lose us in a minute, but uh, grab the MP3 uh, hopefully this weekend, and you can hear the rest of the conversation. It's only gonna go by another five or ten minutes. Um, but you could overlay that 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 observation. This state of you, you the state of ufology has been the same seemingly as far as this disclosure thing goes for decades. It's always like oh the there's people in the government who want to tell the truth about this and uh, trust us. They're they're going to share us some share, share some information with us. And this is such an exciting time to be a part of this field because this is really this is the good shit. And for the people who like, not to get too much on a soapbox, but like, A, we don't know necessarily what we're seeing. We, we, it's going to take a while before we can really judge what we're seeing. But for the people who are like, this is the most exciting time to be a, a part of the UFO field, it's like, read Adam's book, dude. They're talking about underground fucking alien bases, man. <laughs> They're talking about wars between aliens and people and, and hybrid humans kept in vats and shit. And at the time, people believed it. Talk about an exciting time to be a part of, part of ufology. That's exciting. Not a little blob on, yeah. a, on, a, on a Navy pilot's video. I hear you, man. Bring bring me yeah. the uh, white dracos. I don't care about Tic Tacs. Exactly, the white dracos. <laughs> so that that's kind of my like soapbox rant in a way where it's like, look, dude, you know, we can't really – you gotta, you gotta use some caution here, uh, people who were just kind of mixed up in this in recent years. Um, I guess that's the that would be my advice. But I guess what would what would you tell the people of UFO world today who are all in a lather about um, about, about the state of ufology right now? Because because you know they're there. They are beside themselves. You mentioned it in the book. You have a chapter on the TTSA stuff at the end. Um, but, you know, they are they are just, like I said, they're just over the moon about, <laughs> about what's going on. And and I part of me is like, I'm, ha- I'm kind of happy for them. I'm like, oh, God, they're having the time of their lives, these guys. But it's like, oh, geez, you know, this this wave crashes, man. This wave crashes. So, you know, find a buoy. But I guess what would your advice be to people like who are following this right now? I'll, I'll sort of fine-tune the question. What would your advice be to people who are following this now, who are seeing this information come out, whether it's videos? I forgot all about the Wilson documents so you mentioned them just now. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, some some shady fucking documents that, uh, you know, some shady documents that just surfaced out of nowhere – uh, you know, what would your advice be to people who are sort of following this, who may be a little naive to the past of all this? Um, you know, what would, what would you tell them other than read the fucking book so they can get an idea how this all works? <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. Buy my book. Uh, <laughs> ah, just uh, look at the, uh, you know, look, look at the history here. Basically, uh, ufology and these stories getting retreaded time and time again. You know, it's not uh, 
with the um, there was there's some interesting uh, stuff we talked about the uh, Benowitz affair and what came out of that and how he was uh, you know photographing filming all that weird stuff going on over uh, Kirtland Air Force Base but at, during that same period at that same time uh, one evening the Albuquerque uh, airport there which is a uh, Pretty pretty big uh, hub, you know, for uh, flights. Um, during that Kirtland period, when uh, De- or uh, Benowitz was seeing all that stuff, there was uh, in one uh, evening afternoon where uh, some craft were seen uh, near Kirtland, the uh, airport there basically uh, lost power at that same time where. There was reports of these uh, UFOs. We're talking they lost uh, power and had to shut down the airport for like, uh, you know, there's there's some documented newspaper reports of this as well. And it uh, it happened over a several-hour period where UFOs apparently were associated with this total shutdown of a – one of the major airports in the United States. So that seems like a big kind of UFO story there, you know, and there was a a lot of interest in that at the uh, time, and eventually uh, FOIAs came out that uh, talked about it. They never quite figured out what was uh, going on, but this was one of these uh, stories where you had, you know, the same – uh, kind of episodes we're talking about uh, now with the you know the sightings that have happened over aircraft carriers and military installations where there's unexplained uh, craft and what is the government hiding and there seems to be a lot of uh, action with uh, civilian researchers ufology trying to get to the uh, answer to these uh, questions, but this isn't the first time this has happened, and this isn't the, uh, also the first time where you seem to have a bunch of different uh, players involved that uh, have been involved in this scene for many, many years, uh, you know, pushing these same stories that, yeah, we're right on the cusp, and then, you know, for somebody like uh, TTSA and uh, Along, it, there's there, it's also wrapped up in not only the new information they're trying to present, but Delong is also a proponent of uh, you know when ETSA first broke that he was in contact with a general somewhere, McCaslin, I think his name was, who had worked at uh, Wright Patterson and had uh, information on Roswell. There was hints that there was the Roswell crash, uh, the material from the crash had been recovered and they were looking at it, you know, and these are the same stories that have been around for years and years and years going back to Art Art Bell and Art's parts, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> well, see, like, try it. Oh, God, 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 God. <laughs> well, when you, see, when you see this shit crop up, 
Roswell type. Oh, hold on. Take a break. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what always you know, gets me. Look, go ahead. Well, what always gets me, too, in the sense is like, uh, I've talked about this with Aaron Gullius on the show, too, where it's like the the conspiracy world, especially UFO world, now they're, now they're like, as you write in the book, like now they're like, oh, the deep state's cool. Turns out the deep state's, they're, they're yeah. you know, they, they're, they, they're, they're benevolent. Um, they had reasons for doing what they did or whatever. Um, but to me, it's like reading the book, reading your book and, and, and knowing the history of this stuff. I guess what irritates me in a sense uh, is the people, they're all on board with this idea that like, oh, they, that, that, the, the government wants to be more transparent about this. But it's like, look at dude, there's always – the story has always been that there's, that there's good guys in the government who want to tell us what's going on. That's always been the fucking story, and, and, yeah. <laughs> and that's been the story for like 40 years at least, um, at least, if not going back to like whenever, whenever there are people within the government who were – uh, on the on the sly talking to UFO researchers, it's always been, oh, there's good people in the government who want to tell us the truth about UFOs. Well, it's like, look at dude, it's been like sixty fucking years. Apparently, <laughs> apparently they don't they don't they're not good enough. They don't care enough to to to, to blow the whistle on this. So maybe maybe you ought not just be like, well, these guys really mean it. It's like, no, dude, they say that all the time. That's always the story. Oh, there's good guys who want to tell us the truth. Like how many times are we gonna fall for that shit? Yeah. Oh man. All right, I got one uh, last question for you, and then I'll let you go because uh, uh, I'm getting I'm getting ranty, which is the last thing people <laughs> <laughs> want to hear. Um, what I thought was really interesting, I hadn't learned of this till I read your book, um, and they're definitely. I don't think you went too deeply into speculation about this, but you sort of like. Uh, left the dots there for people to connect. So maybe we can kind of just delve into this a little bit. What I thought was interesting was the um, – apparently there was a prison riot in Santa Fe around the same time as the Dulce – quote, unquote, Dulce – the alleged Dulce incident where the, the aliens and the people went to war and a bunch of uh, aliens or people died, depending on which version of the story you hear. Um, and – the implication, I guess, by people at the time was that the prison riot was used as a cover to cover up the deaths of people. But I I sort of interpreted it, and I think this sort of idea was introduced somewhere in the book, was that maybe the, the Dulce thing was supposed to be like, like a – I don't know what you'd call it, like a, a metaphor or whatever for something that – for what happened at that – in that prison riot. Like maybe they were testing shit on prisoners and that went awry and it caused a riot to unfold. And it's like, you can take the Dulce story and apply it to what happened with the prison riot. And maybe that's the real story in a sense. Maybe that was what was going on. And people were supposed to, I don't know, figure that out or something. But, I mean, maybe I'm just super, like, conspiratorial, and that's what I just read into that, what I was reading into it when I read the book. But, I mean, talk a little bit about that prison riot, and does it? do you think it has some kind of connection to the Dulce? I know it's, it's sort of, like, been loosely cloaked into the story, but 
I mean, what do you think the connection to that might really be? Well, I wasn't really aware of that prison riot till Tal told me about it, you know, mm-hmm. in one of our e- uh, many emails and conversations. And uh, with a lot of the stuff he shared with me, you know, I did some research to make sure it was on the uh, level where he's giving me some factual information. I mean, some of it I can't prove what he told me, but there right. indeed was a prison riot in 1979. Now, what Tal told me, and you know how I've said, uh, or I think uh, Thomas Castello, the guy who was involved in the Dulce War, you know, the heroic security guard, I always uh, believed was, uh, or I came to the conclusion that it was a composite character that uh, Tal constructed of his life and also Benowitz, kind of mixed together, because Tal was a security guard, so he claimed, uh, worked at secret installations and whatnot, and he was, uh, when he was in Santa Fe during that period in 79, he said there was a, uh, he he was aware of uh, underground entrances, you know, and uh, one of the, one of these was at this old uh, hospital. I forget what the name was there in uh, Santa Fe. And uh, Tal also claimed that uh, Castello lived in Santa Fe during that period. And these underground entrances is, are what they took. Uh, they used a shuttle that uh, took the workers to uh, Dulce Base. Anyway, Tal claims that on one night he got a call from his bosses that he needed to go to where one of these entrances were at this uh, old hospital, I think it was in uh, Santa Fe and dressed in black, they told him and uh, some people will show up there and you just need to open up the entrance for them and these, you know, commando guys in black uh, showed up and he uh, opened the entrance for them, whatever that was, and that's the last he uh, saw them. He thought this was somehow connected with this prison riot or the Dulce uh, base, or maybe, you know, that was a metaphor, this riot. But the riot itself happened in 79, and 33 inmates uh, were basically killed in this prison riot. Now, that's been documented, that happened. Yeah. Cal claimed that some other information that he was aware of uh, some type of military vehicle that was beaming waves, microwaves, whatever, like the stuff maybe that uh, Benowitz claimed he was being affected by, that uh, it was these beams that caused this uh, confrontation, this melee, where all these 33 inmates died. Right, now. yeah, yeah. So this, and like I said, I began to see this as a metaphor. Why was Tal telling me this? And he hinted that, I don't remember all of our conversations, but this was somehow connected with the Dulce base uh, confrontation. Perhaps it was a cover or maybe it was just a metaphor. What I got out of my conversations with Tal, he had a long history in investigating the hollow earth. He knew Richard <laughs> yeah. Shaver, you know, whole Shaver mystery. So he believed that yeah, there was these underground networks and the government 
had come in and tapped into some of these ancient tunnel ways, and that's where Dulce Base and all of this uh, things were constructed and uh, how the government started working with these aliens, perhaps from outer space, maybe they're from the inner Earth. All of these things get yeah, yeah. Uh, morphed together in the uh, world of Tal, but I began to suspect, yeah, that uh, this was a metaphor uh, that Dulce Base uh, confrontation with Dulce War was a way of uh, Tal telling this story that yes, there are these underground bases. They are there are experimentation going on with perhaps mind control weapons and this and that. And you know that part of the uh, story is true. Uh, he wove in all these these other elements basically to bring more attention to himself and other people trying to uh, promote this idea of this uh, secret underground base in uh, New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it certainly struck me that it was like maybe, maybe the prison riot happened and they, either they were doing something to these prisoners or they had to take them down using some kind of clandestine, uh, weaponry or something, and then that became it melded it you know it 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 melded into the dulce story or something. It certainly seems like there's something going on there i don't know what i don't know yeah. you know i don't necessarily would know what that is though but and there there was thirty three people who died at the uh prison riots, and uh supposedly the dulce war sixty six people died you know so there is right exactly. <laughs> working with some numerology there, too. So I think, yeah, it's all uh, connected, or Tal was influenced, or he wove that uh, prison riot uh, into this whole Dulce base uh, mythos. Because, like, if you think about it, it could be as simple a situation as, like, okay, they bring in these dead prisoners, and they're all, like, they all died under weird circumstances, right? And it's like, well, okay. Oh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I'm just, no, this is a theory. This is not what actually happened. So this is a theory. Yeah. That, that you know, they brought in these dead prisoners. They were, they, you know, let's say they, they, they're all, their internal organs melted or whatever. And the nurses were like, this is fucked. Like, what happened to these people? Um, yeah. And, you know, instead of the government wanting to be like, look, we have a secret weapon that can melt someone's organs, they're like, look, we can't, you know, maybe they pulled a couple of people aside, a supervisor or whatever. <laughs> it was like, look, we can't tell anybody this. You're, you're sworn to secrecy. You can go to jail for the rest of your life if you find this out. But there's an underground alien base. Da 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 da. And next thing you know, that's the that's the Dulce story. You know what I mean? That part yeah. of me wonders if something like that happened. Actually, I think that's what Cal was hinting at too. I mean, right, I, right. I don't. I don't believe that happened, but yeah, I think uh, he might have also been. That's what he was hinting at uh, too, because he he wouldn't tell me the whole story, but he was hinting at that this uh, deal happened. Yeah, and that they might have moved those bodies from Dulce. You know, they got this underground shuttle system, and they moved them to that Santa Fe riot just to. Uh, whatever, uh, as a cover story to get rid of right, the right. bodies, yeah. Okay, so that crazy. was the interpret. So, I, so I, I, I 
right? Properly read the book. All right. Uh, well, <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to let you go here, brother. The book is, uh, well, I guess it's kind of. You know, I sort of do this. What's next for you? I mean, the book just came out. What's next for you is probably a countless number of podcast appearances and radio shows to talk about the book. But like, what do you? Um, I'm sure you want to take a break in a sense from researching, but uh, I also know that you usually had a few irons in the fire. So, uh, you know, can you tell us anything about what you might be working on next? I have a uh, James uh, Shelby Downard uh, unpublished work that I am working on, uh, trying to get published, uh, editing it at the uh, moment and pulling it all together. So that's the latest. All also, right. you know, building a uh, – uh, the uh, what do we call them? The, uh, I forgot the name of the the cat uh, – what do they call these things? The catio? The, uh, the catio, catio, yeah. <laughs> Working yeah. on the home projects, you know, and uh, getting through the uh, coronavirus thing. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, so uh, yeah. That's yeah, fine. you got the jab. You're all set. So I got the jab. Yeah, yeah and uh, following the breaking uh, Matt Gates news, so I'm staying exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have. Yeah, you and I are we're of the same ilk. We have more something. <laughs> the the other the others would say we have Trump derangement syndrome, but like. Sorry, but the whole the whole Trump thing kind of directed us. We we kind of lost an interest in a lot of the crazy shit because we were a little worried about the crazy people running the the world. So, uh, yeah. Well, the book is Saucer Spooks and Kooks, Saucer Spooks and Kooks: UFO Disinformation in the Age of Aquarius. It's from Daily Grail Publishing. Our friend Greg Taylor, and people can get it uh, on Amazon. Um, you know, go and get it right now. So uh, I can't I can't recommend the book enough. Um, I will to on one sort of dark note in a way, but also sort of an uplifting note to people who are like Adam and I who have a life beyond the world, the world of UFOs. I couldn't help but kind of marvel at the fact, and it's been borne out from all the years that I do this show. And again, it's, it's a dark sort of ending, so we'll we'll try to bring it back to a light part after this. But it's like, look at. In the book, there's, like, so many people, they're all wrapped up in this, and they're all in a frenzy about this shit. And then, like, later as the book progresses, it's like, this person died, and that person died. And now tonight I find out Benny Goodman died, and it's like, Stan died. And a lot of people who were uh, part of an All-America, you know, they passed away, like Jim Mars and Brad Steyer. It's like, it's like I guess the point is, in a sense, that it should hit home to people. It certainly has to me. It's like, just take a deep breath, folks. Like, take a deep breath and enjoy life beyond the fucking weird. Because because you may be all worked up about, about the latest picture to be released of a blob in the sky. And you can be hit by a bus tomorrow. And it's like, you may be, it's like they always say, like, nobody ever says, oh, I wish I worked more. It's it's like, I, I don't know how people on their deathbed say, I wish I'd spent more time trying to figure out UFOs. It's it's like, it's like it, prioritize your life, folks. That was kind of... Uh, one of the one of the bigger messages, sort of, that I realized uh, reading the book and uh, and from my own experience. So, um, you know, not to get sentimental here, man, but like I said, it's been 15 years since uh, you first sent me that email. Uh, you know, I really, uh, I mean, I'm sure our paths would have crossed 
at some point otherwise, but I, I'm really appreciative that you did, man, because it was the beginning of a fantastic friendship. Um, you know, we've broken bread here at my home. We've we've uh, hung out in Los Angeles. I'll never forget us our visit to the Museum of Death in that, hor- that oh, horrifying yeah. that horrifying visit to the Museum of Death in Los Angeles, and our and our, and our fake slap fight on the sidewalk. That uh, <laughs> still makes me laugh. I think Greg Bishop has video of that. Um, and of course, our uh, appearance in the Hill on the Hole. If folks haven't seen the Hill on the Hole. Um, you know what? I tell you what. I'm going to dig up the audio. Of I have an audio version of you. Uh, you. You know that thing you did where you told the story of Hill in the Hole for the trailer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put that in the middle of the show so folks can get a little. We'll put a little commercial for Hill in the Hole uh, in uh, okay. in the middle of the show. So, but uh, yeah, it's been a wild ride, brother. It's really been a wild ride, and uh, I consider you one of my closest friends in this field. And I'm not. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. I, I really mean it. Like I said, people. <laughs> People have no idea. We talk more often than anyone can can possibly imagine. Adam and I are are, are quite frequently in conversation online. So uh, I I consider you um, at the risk of really getting getting sentimental. I can honestly say, ladies and gentlemen, listen tonight, uh, I can probably count on one hand uh, the people in this field that I really like. I consider my my super inner circle, and Adam Gorelli is one of them. So – um, you know, it's been great talking to you tonight. I love the book, and uh, I'll probably be pestering you <laughs> more questions as they as they pop into my head, uh, having read the book. So I, I highly recommend it, and congrats, and, and well done, my friend. Thank you, my man. And it was a pleasure talking to you, Tim. Always is. All right, brother. I'll let you get going. I got to sign off to the Banal of America uh, listeners. I won't put you through that torture. So have a great night, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. All right. Good night. All right, folks. There you go. That was Adam Go Rightly. Uh, awesome, awesome conversation. That was that was fantastic. Um, uh, I feel like we almost only really scratched the surface on this book. It is uh, Saucers, Spooks, and Kooks. UFO disinformation in the age of Aquarius. You got to go check it out, folks. You got to pick up this book. Um, I know I'm talking to the hardcore of all of America listeners, the people who've been with us for a long, 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 long time, uh, who are intimately aware of some of the stuff we talked about tonight. MJ12, the Dulce Base, um, a lot of that stuff. This book really provides so much insight into how these these tales became part of the fabric of, of UFO lore. Um, and I consider myself a, a pretty good student of ufology, but this was certainly a, an enlightening read, uh, even for me. So I highly, highly recommend it. UFO saucers, spooks, and kooks. UFO dis- disinformation in the age of Aquarius. Sorry, I threw the book over on my on my side table there. Um, so what else? So what's going on now? We got uh, another episode next week. I confirmed this with the guest this afternoon, so I can uh, proudly say that next Friday night, which will be what April sixteenth, we'll be joined by uh, the one and only Jason Offit, long time, another long time friend of Banal of America. As I said, this series of episodes here in the spring. I'm hoping to uh, bring back a lot of old friends of the show 
catch up with them, see what they've been up to. In the case of Adam, they have new workout. In the case of Jason, he's been doing some fiction work. Um, and he always has opinions on all kinds of stuff. So we're going to get, get uh, him on the show next week. And we always have a lot of laughs with uh, with Jason Offit. So, uh, yeah, that's the plan. Next Friday night, April 16th, same banal time, same banal channel, 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, Jason Offit. Nothing really in particular to talk about. He's got a new book on time travel, so uh, a fiction book. So we'll talk about that and uh, talk about writing. I want to talk to him about that and get his thoughts on, uh, you know, being a writer, writing fiction, what that's like, what the challenges of that are, and uh, and all that good stuff. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, I hope everybody enjoyed the conversation tonight. Big thanks again to Adam. That was uh, that was really a lot of fun. Time flew by, uh, and I try not to drag the guests past the two-hour mark, um, you know, because they've already given us so much time. But with Adam. There were a lot of little uh, tributaries that I wanted to explore, and I really appreciate him uh, giving us the extra time. So with all that said, thank you, everybody, for listening tonight. Until next week, this is Tim Benall, signing off.